The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Um, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue in our uh, 20-week series, uh, now looking at verse 8 in chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and seek good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word to us. And what we've been doing the four previous Sundays here is receiving words of encouragement and guidance and teaching for various groups of people. Peter has spoken about several different relationships and how our relationship with Jesus is going to affect our relationships with these people. A few weeks ago, we started this little series talking about our relationship to government and how we are to submit to the authority that God's placed in our life through, through government institutions. And next, next he talked about uh, servants to their masters, and in our case, uh, employees to their bosses. And then we looked at our relationship between wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives. And now, having addressed these various relationships, Peter, the author, addresses, addresses Christians in general, going back to this general call of what we are called to as Christians and the conduct of our character uh, and, and how we are to live because of what God has done in our life. And so what follows is going to be a list of qualities, character traits that, we, that he calls us to, and he even lists them. He says unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind and do not repay evil for evil, but instead bless And these lists of qualities need to be seen in the context of this entire letter that he has written. So he's he's addressing a common view that Christians have. And that common view says this. It believes this in error. If we do the right thing, God won't let anything bad happen to us. He'll rescue us from trouble and life will be good if we do the right thing. Yet nothing sometimes can be further from the truth. God's best people are often they often suffer the worst that God has to offer. And this is not an indication of his judgment. It's not an indication of God's displeasure. It's not an indication of his discipline in our life. In fact, our character in the midst of struggle and in the midst of trouble can be a powerful tool of witness to the hope that we have to the world. And it will shape our daily actions. And so this passage addresses three things. First is the pursuit of godly character. He's talking, I'm sorry, the first, the the reason of godly character. He's going to give us a reason 
for why we should have a godly character. And second, the pursuit of a godly character. And lastly, the challenge to a godly character that we're all going to be challenged in, that we all face when we struggle, even for when we do good. And so first, the reason for godly character. These, these five traits in, chapter, in uh, verse 8 can easily be seen as just behaviors to pursue as a Christian. So if you're a Christian, then be like this. Uh, be, you know, do these things in your life, and, and be a good person, and be humble, and be sympathetic, and, and have brotherly love for one another, and do not repay evil for evil. We can put them before us and work hard to just do these things in our life. And we even list these maybe on a piece of paper. We list them on a poster in our room or in our journal. We say, i got to get better at doing these things in my life. But it's important to see that these character traits are not things that we do, but it's a person that we are. It is much easier to do something than to be someone, isn't it? It's much different and easier to do a generous thing than to be a generous person. Everyone can do generous things. But we run the risk of making the mistake to thinking just because we do something generous that we are a generous person. And so these character traits are meant to describe the person that we are to be because of what God has done in our life. So God has called us to be a blessing because he has called us to obtain a blessing. God isn't merely concerned with behavior modification. He doesn't just want a bunch of really good people living their life. He is concerned with a complete transformation of who we are and our identity. This referring to God's act of grace in our life that results in a new birth. And in chapter 1, we remember this. Peter says, you've been born again to a living hope that is, that is undefiled and unfading and imperishable, kept in heaven for you. You've been born again to a new hope. You're a new creation in Christ. Because of the grace that has been given to you, you're thoroughly and entirely a different person. A man and woman is born naturally the first time through their mother's womb and born a second time through the work of the power of God in their life. And this is the work of God. And so he's talking about this, this new person that we are called to. We're called to be this because we're called to receive that promised blessing that is ours. He's talking about conversion. He's talking about the Christian conversion of a person that goes from being in a state of spiritual death because of their sin and changed into a a position of spiritual life with God. Conversion is the creation of new desires, not just new actions. It is the change of uh, new delights, not just new deeds. It is the reality of new passions, not just new religious tasks in our day. And so Peter is really saying, be someone. Be someone that responds to God's call in your life. God, God's call to us is, a, is to be a certain type of person, and it's not possible without the grace of God changing us in our life. We can't possibly be this kind of person that responds to God's call in our life, who demonstrates this portrait of godly character without his grace, without the without his intervention in our life. We can't do it just based on the exercise of our will, by just gritting our teeth and trying to be a better person. The origins of this godly character comes from God's character being worked out in us. And so these five things are a response to God's gift in our life. These five characteristics are a response to his free grace being poured out on us. 
And the reason for this character is because we are called to manifest the reality of the blessing that we have in Christ. And so let's look at just these five responses really quickly to look at how does this demonstrate Christ and what he's done in us. First, have unity of mind. Unity of mind does not mean that we agree. That God is not calling us to agree on everything, whether it's uh, social or political or even uh, our theology. He's not calling us agree on every issue that you can possibly agree on. But it includes an attitude to be committed to understanding one another, to going outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, to seeking the well-being of the person that we disagree with. Unity does not come from the idea that we don't disagree, but seeks to pursue relationships that are rooted in a respect for another person and a sensitivity to their concerns. Because the cross of Christ, Christians can be misunderstood. Christians can be different. Christians can have different opinions and still be unified in relationship of love with one another. Second, he says, have sympathy. Be sympathetic. Christ's love shines in the sympathy that we express to one another because sympathy means that we are ready to rejoice with the joy of others and we are ready to mourn with the struggles of others. The Bible talks about how Christians experience this as members of a body together. And the Bible says if one member is suffering, then the whole body hurts. If your feet hurt, your whole body hurts. If the tip of your finger hurts, you feel it in everything that you do. Well, this is how we live out this relationship as God's people, that when we are suffering, we are sympathetic with one another. We don't say, well, that's your issues, that's her or his issues, but we engage in that and we say, I'm with you in this, I'm suffering with you and I'm on this path with you to restoration and to healing because we are in God's family. Have brotherly love. Like other traits, this is specifically Christian. It's not simply simply a teaching of camaraderie. It's not saying be pals with one another, be close with one another. It is a deep realization that we are sons and daughters of God. And because of our relationship with him as sons and daughters, that makes us brothers and sisters. Seeing one another in the family of God as a sister in Christ, a brother in Christ. And so we care, we engage, we love, we pursue. We treat one another with this brotherly affection and love. Fourth, have a tender heart. This aspect, probably more than others, should be a reminder about being compassionate is not just a spiritual gift, but a spiritual command. You know, you might think, well, that's just not my gifting. That's not my temperament. That's not what I'm good at. I'm not good at being soft. I'm not good at being tender. I'm not good at being feely with others. This is not an option for God's people. It's not a spiritual gift that is different from one person to another. It's a spiritual command. And for some of us who love the strength and the power of Christ and the the power of God to to rule and His steadfast might, it might be hard for us to to enter into passages like Ephesians chapter 4, 32 that says, Be kind, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven us in Christ. Seeing this aspect that God the Father is tender, that He does have softness within Him. He has a heart that feels that is willing and ready to engage with others in a very feely, tender way. This word is be tender-hearted. It means like from your gut, like let there be a softness in your soul for others. And lastly, have a humble mind. 
To be humble is to be committed to suppressing our desire to be important in the eyes of others and pursuing our own concerns. Being willing to suppress that desire and to seek out others. And this is no, in no way better seen than in Christ. In Philippians 2, how Christ emptied himself. He did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, but he suppressed his desire and, and, and really privilege to be great and to be important, and he humbled himself. And so we see, likewise, as Christ has demonstrated this in your life, be that person. Be humble. Suppress your need to be known and to be important in the eyes of others. But serve as he has served us. And so looking at these five, just real quick, we see this list is, it provides for us this needed corrective for this half-hearted Christianity, for people that, that need a powerful motivation to, be, to live a life of holy living, which Peter says all Christians have been called to. So Peter moves from saying, be someone that responds to God's gracious calling in your life and gracious blessing in your life and to encourage us to pursue this life with great pursuit, with great courage, with great strength that he's called us to. And this is important. It's not that God has done this for us and he's poured out his grace on us and he desires that we would be this people. But Peter says, pursue this. Work towards this. To be this person. So he says, the pursuit of godly character begins with a great question. I'm paraphrasing this as he talks about this. He says, do you want a good life? This is what he says. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him, let him do these things. And he's saying, do you want a good life? Do you want a peaceful life? Do you want a life of, of blessing? Well, of course. Of course we do. He's, he's appealing to something that we all desire. To live life and to be blessed. We are offered through, through many cultural channels today uh, a very skewed definition of what it means to have the good life to be blessed, to be comfortable. What is the good life? What is a good day in the life of a great life? It's summertime, it's getting warmer, and so I promise you'll see this commercial as, as, as I remember, I've seen for every summer for many years uh, before, and it'll probably be back. Here's the commercial. This, it's summertime, the camera is looking at the ocean, and you hear the seagulls uh, making their seagull noise, and it is just a beautiful scenery, and you see the palm trees, and then the, the camera begins to, to pan out. And as it pans out and zooms out, you see the tips of these lime wedges together, and it zooms out, and you see these lime wedges are in these Corona bottles, and then it zooms out further, and there's these, this couple sitting in lawn chairs on the beach, and they're sitting there, and they take a sip, and then they put it back, and then the commercial's over. And then you're thinking, that's what I want. This is a good day. You're thinking, what is wrong with that? That is a great day in a great life. These people have it all made. That's the life that I want. And you can have this life, you can have this day for the cost of a $10 six-pack. And you do that and it doesn't quite play out the way you had hoped. Our culture is obsessed with the good life. Our, our culture is obsessed. And the way that the culture tells us to have the good life to have a good day is to pursue winning, to pursue greatness, to pursue success, to pursue elitism, to pursue prosperity, to be better than everyone. If you want a good life, you've got to be at the top. 
If you want a good life, you have to be great. And God's wisdom offers to us something completely countercultural than that. To love life does not mean that you will be trouble-free. Rather, it means that it's possible to have a good life and to enjoy life and to be content in the life that, gives, that God gives you no matter what your circumstances. Whether you have plenty, whether you are wanting and desiring more, if you desire to have good days, Peter is quoting directly from Psalm 34, if you desire good days and good relationships, he says you must control your tongue. If you desire peace, then do things that pursue peace. Turn from evil and do good. Do good. This phrase, do good, is used 12 times in this, in this structure, 12 times in the entire New Testament. And Peter alone uses six of them. Half of the occurrences, he's talking about pursuing peace so that we may have a life of peace. Seek peace and pursue it. Don't meddle in everyone's business. Proverbs 26, 17, it says this to the extent, it says, if you don't want to be bit by a dog, don't go up and grab its ear. That's in the Bible? Yes. It is very good wisdom. Do things that pursue peace. Control your tongue. Turn from evil. Do not repay evil with evil. When reviled, bless. As often as it is up to you, pursue peace with one another. Some things are not up to you and some things you cannot control. But as much as you can control, pursue peace. Well, what's the fear in that? Well, well what, if, what if it doesn't work out for me? What if, it, what if I, end on the sh- I get the short end of the stick on this? What if I do end up troubled and I get punished because of this? Or what, if, what if they get me? Like, what if someone seeks to abuse me and I seek to do good in return and then my life is harmed? God says, trust God. They will be put to shame. Believe in Him. Peter does not have in mind this work-based blessing from God. He is not saying it's not a do-good to get good from God, but rather he's telling us the good that God calls us to receive in His blessing. Also, He calls us to follow a path that leads to this blessing. It's consistent with a phrase in in Philippians chapter 2 that says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work out His good pleasure. So what this is saying is God works in you. He works on your will. So what God does in our heart is God is actually responsible for changing our feelings, for, for influencing our desires. He changes our will. He changes our want. And it is God who actually works in us to do good work. And so not only does God shape our heart to feel a certain way, God shapes our life to live in a certain way that will produce the life that receives his blessing. Peter's referring to a quality of life that is God-produced. And this leads us to the final point, and it's the challenge of a godly character. Because see, we, have, we see this reason for godly character. Pursue these things because God has called you to, to, to be this kind of person. Pursue this. Do not pursue the wisdom of the world, but this upside-down, countercultural and counterintuitive wisdom from God that is on the path of, of, that leads to his blessing, and this is a challenge. 
It's easy to sing of God's blessing in church on Sunday. When we're all facing the same direction, we don't have to look at each other, we're looking at a screen and reading the words, and we're here at church, it is so easy to direct our hearts to Him and to sing these songs. It is hard to sing about God and to worship Him when that same person turns to us and offends us, mocks us, rebukes us, ridicules us, makes fun of us, or we hear from behind our back that we are that we are being ridiculed, that we are being talked about, that our character is being assassinated here. It is one thing to praise God for His kindness in our success, and yet another to praise God for His kindness when we fail and when we have sorrow. It's quite different. Our struggle will test the genuineness of our character and also the motive for pursuing godly character in the first place. Because a time will come, and I assure you of this, a time will come, and it might even be here today for you, that you do not want to trust God. Now, I'm not saying that you are ready to like abandon Christ and, and walk away from the faith and give it all up and try something new. But I'm saying that a time will come, and it may even be here in your life right now, where you're saying, God, I don't want to walk that path. I don't trust you. I'm doubting if this is really going to work out for me, doing what you have called me to do, if this is really the right way to go. You don't want to pursue your calling to bless even when evil is done to you. You don't want to pursue this humble attitude that does not uh, pursue importance in your life. You don't want to be sympathetic. You don't want to be tenderhearted because it makes you vulnerable and open to attack. Sometimes you just want to take a break from working on your sanctification. Sometimes you will say, is this Christian enough? Can I just stop right here? Is this a good stopping point? Because I feel like I'm doing okay. Maybe you're there right now. And listen, this whole passage has been talking about pursuing God. Pursuing His blessing and doing good and having good character and being a godly person in order to obtain His blessing that He has called us to. And it is about to come to a screeching halt and you're going to hate it at first glance. And I'm sorry, but here is what it is. You might spend your entire life pursuing God, pursuing Him, being obedient to Him, doing good when evil is done to you, doing the right thing. You're a great person. And here is the reward you get for it. You have a horrible life. You suffer. You're ridiculed. You're poor. You lose your job. You lose your friends. And this is how you've been repaid. And in that moment, maybe you question it and you say, what's the point? Does it really matter? Because Peter is saying, it's one thing to suffer when you do bad. Everybody understands that. You made a mistake and you're suffering because of it. You're living the consequences of your actions. And Peter says, What happens when you suffer for doing good? What happens when you do the right thing and bad things still happen to you? You're going to ask yourself, what's the point? Why pursue God? Why trust in Him and give Him my life? And Peter says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. Trust in Christ. Turn from the fear of man and turn and place your focus on something else, and namely something else, he says, honoring Christ, the Lord who is holy, preparing yourself to give an answer for the hope that you have. And what is your hope? That's the real question, isn't it? Well, my hope is 
that I, that I would, my hope is that in doing good, I would get good from you. My hope is that in doing the right thing. But here's the hope that Peter tells us. Our hope is specifically in how God goes about getting even with sinners. Because it says, do not get even. This is, how, do, how, do I, how do we naturally get even with people when we are wronged? When you are wronged, the natural way to get even with someone is to do wrong in return. How does God get even with people who do wrong with him, with sinners? He kills his son so that you may have his love. How does God get even with sinners? If that doesn't shake you up so much that you would want to do the same for others, then the gospel has not moved into the deepest part of your heart and into the deepest part of your soul. That if you realize that your hope that God gets even with sinners, with you, by sending his son to die for your for you in your place, so that you may be blessed by him. But often we think, well, God is blessing me. God loves me because I have turned over a new leaf, because I have changed my ways, because I have um, done better things in my life. I'm not that person anymore. God loves me because, and blessed me because I am not a bad person. And he says, my son had to die because you are so bad. Our hope is in how God gets even with sinners. Our hope is is in that God does not repay evil with evil. Your hope does not rest in you having the right answer. Your hope rests in what God has done for you in Christ. He has blessed you when you deserved His anger and His wrath. Where does our hope lie? It, It lies in the justification by grace justification by grace. This is a fancy theological way of saying this. The way that God gets even with people who are evil with him is killing his perfect son so that he can extend his love towards you based on the good of his own son and his character and not your record or your character. This is amazing. Peter says, this is your hope. Your hope is that that Christ and his record is good enough for you. We are made right with God, not through impressing him, not through impressing others, not through living up to our own standards of what we want to be or who we want to become in our world. And deep down inside, there's this tendency in us all to want to prove ourselves to God. Peter knows this so well, and he brings it to life, and he says, you're going to suffer you're going to have trouble. And sometimes you'll suffer for, for doing bad. And so learn from that and don't do bad. Be on the path so that you can be at peace with others. But sometimes you're going to suffer for doing good. And you didn't do anything wrong. And deep down, the nasty stuff in your heart is going to want to come out and it's going to want to say things like this. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. They shouldn't have done this to me. They should know better. I need to set the record straight. I need to prove to them that, what they, that, that crossing me was the wrong thing to do. Aren't you glad that God does not say that to us? But instead, he gives his son. He does not repay evil with evil. 
When we act in those ways, when we feel those things and act out in those ways, we are saying the cross isn't enough. Jesus died, that's all well and good, but that's not enough. We're saying Jesus dying for me is not that big of a deal. It's a great blessing, it's a great thing, and I want to be more like Jesus, but there's something else that needs to be done that I need to do. If you want to be good because you want to be a better person, merely just to be a better, cleaner, nicer person, then you don't know why Jesus died for you. If you want to be a good person so that just to be good to others, to bless others and to love them, then you don't know why, why Jesus died for you. If you want to be good to prove yourself to God so that he can love you, then you don't know why Jesus died for you. See, the whole death of Christ is a real sticky matter when we, in Christianity. If, if he died, then we really needed a Savior. And if we really need a Savior, then there's something that needs to be done in our life that we cannot do for ourselves. Today we start Holy Week. We begin on this journey of reflecting on the last week of Christ, where he was mocked, where he was betrayed, where he was, where he was ridiculed, where evil was poured on him. And he takes it to the cross, and he does not revile. Instead, he says, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Bless them. And he dies a sinner's death and he takes our sin on Good Friday. And it's Good Friday because in this work he atones for our sins. He takes the evil look of God away from us. And he replaces it with God's favor and love and forgiveness. And death could not hold him. And he rises from the dead in victory and triumph as a sign of our own new birth. And forever eternal life with Him for those who believe in Him. And we celebrate that on Easter next Sunday. Where we say this is our hope. The death, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not my standards, not my character, not the good that I have done. Peter says instead, instead of repaying, instead of pursuing your own reputation in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, Honor Him as holy. This is a confession of the, of the greatest importance. It is the essence of the Christian faith in our hearts to, con, to turn to Him as holy, to honor Him as Lord. It is saying, there is no hope that I have in this life or in the next, but for Christ to extend His grace to me and to not repay my evil with evil. I believe that Christ is ultimately Lord and ultimately Lord of my life, and so I give Him my life in its entirety. I give him my hopes, I give him my fears, I give him my dreams, I give him my emotions and my works, I give him everything. And here in his word as I pursue it, he's called me to be a blessing because I have been blessed. And so I walk in those ways, I walk in that path that leads to blessing, that honors him. This change is about knowing the delight of following Christ and obeying him. And to do that we must give up this cheap imitation, that mere behavior modification that is just another way, another form of rejecting the gospel of grace. Saying that God wants me to be a better person is a cheap imitation. It is another way of rejecting a justification by grace. Because what Christ's death on the cross says is that you need something that you cannot do. And no measure of your doing and your character and your record can get what God desires you to get. His blessing. And so Christ pours out his life for you. And here is the challenge of godly character. 
The challenge for us is to let the reality of this justification by grace define every area of your life and convert every area of your life and transform every area of your life and your relationship with everyone in your life. The challenge is to trust Christ and follow in his call in your life even when it leads to trouble. Do you see that challenge? But this is what it means to hope in Christ. To know that, God, there's a high probability that if I trust you and walk in your ways, that I will be ridiculed, that I might not win in an earthly sense. Jesus was able to do this on Palm Sunday. Do you know that in the eyes of the world, Jesus, in many respects, was a complete loser? An embarrassing failure. A mockery of all the people that followed him. He had a large following, a compelling message. He had a a celebrity reputation as he entered into Jerusalem as what we know as Palm Sunday. And and he was honored and people said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You are our Savior. Hosanna means he saves us. He has come to save us. He has come to make things right. And this same crowd, one week later, later are yelling, crucify him, kill him, get him out of here. We hate him. He was a loser, a failure, and then he died. And people said, well, some God he is. He died. The city was gathered as he entered in, and they worshipped him, and then they abandoned him, and no one was left. Think about the Son of God, who he had. He had his mom at the cross, which that doesn't count. Everyone left him. Peter betrayed him. The author of this letter, he knows humility. He knows God not repaying evil for evil. Peter knows this. He is writing this letter with a deep awareness in his soul, knowing I am that one who has done evil to to Christ. People said, do you know him? In his time of need, he was being arrested and he's being chained. And people said, will you come to his defense? And Peter said, No, I don't know who that is. I'm not associated with him. Three times he had an opportunity to support his friend, and he turned his back. And Christ pursued him after he rose from the dead. And Peter was contrite and broken, and in his repentant heart, Christ said, I'm going to build my church on you. This is crazy. God sent his son to buy our freedom. What God invites us into is magnificent. It is true. It is full. It is the rich pleasure that will last forever, made possible to us only because Christ took upon himself the anger that God had directed towards us. It is human nature to do the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible does not appeal to our common decency. Don't you realize that? The Bible never appeals to our common decency because our common decency, our common nature says, do the opposite of what God says. But it it offers an alternative to our nature. Turn away from your natural disposition. Turn to Christ. Fix your eyes on him who is the model and perfecter of your faith, and you will never be sorry. You will never be put to shame. The grace of God that is ours by faith in Jesus unites us to him. 
This lets us live well. This lets us speak blessing. It lets us do good and to seek peace and to have humility and to have compassion and to not repay wrong with wrong. It allows us the freedom to, be, to, be, to have pain inflicted on us and us still be okay because our hope is in Christ and what he has done. But sometimes bad things come to us even when there's nothing wrong that we did. And even in those times, we are assured that God hears our prayers. And that should be enough to move us to live faithfully in what he has called. You can trust him. I know you're afraid. Maybe there's something right now in your life and you're saying, I feel I know the right answer of what God wants me to do. That is God's spirit talking to you and leading you to the path that will lead to blessing and a full life with Christ. Don't ignore it. Go into fully submitting yourself, saying, God, whatever happens, I am going to follow you. And you'll never be sorry. Let's pray.